Genesis chapter 35, verses 5 through 15. And the Lord will be honored if we stand for the reading of his word. And the word of the Lord reads, And as they saw, they excuse me. <laughs> and as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because God, there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called the name Along Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the, pla- the name of the place where God has spoken with him, Bethel. This is the word of the Lord. This brings us to our text this morning, which is a um, small part what was read of what we're actually going to be covering. We're going to be looking at chapters 33, 34, and 35 of um, the book of Genesis this morning. He was a sailor, a Navy uh, midshipman in the British Navy. Later, after he left the Navy, uh, he was captured and he was enslaved on the African coast until a friend of his father's found him and got him away from there. And then he became a slave trader himself. He actually captured, uh, captained his own ships for a while. The eternal God eventually took a hold of this man and he joined the anti-slavery movement of his time. He had a powerful influence on one of the greatest individuals in the anti-slavery movement, the young politician William Wilberforce, whose work ended up causing uh, slavery to be outlawed throughout the British Empire. This hardened seaman was radically transformed, changed by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ordained in the ministry, he then collaborated with the well-known hymn writer William Cowper uh, on what became perhaps the best-known hymnal, uh, the Olney Hymns. He is best known as the author of the hymn, Faith's Review and Expectation. You've all heard of that, have you not? Nobody? Oh, yes, you have. Because it has become known today by its first two words, amazing grace. John Newton's hymn, 
is perhaps the best known hymn. It is a testimony of his life, but it is also the testimony of all of our lives. If we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, if we have experienced the power of the gospel for the salvation of everyone who believes. The Bible declares that the human heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that all, every single human being except for Jesus Christ himself, every human being has come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, he goes on to say. No, not one. There is none who seeks after God. No one who is acceptable in God's sight. Enter Jesus Christ, the perfect and blessed Lamb of God, who has come to take away the sins of the world. His suffering, his death on the cross, met the righteous demands of a holy God, taking the penalty for our sinful rebellion. If you and I understand the greatness, the grandeur of that grace, that amazing grace, if we understand the graveness of our wicked hearts, how violently opposed to God we truly were before the grace of God grabbed a hold of us, if we confess our rebellion against God and have received by faith Jesus Christ as the substitute for our sin, who took God's wrath upon himself, that we might be forgiven, then we can be forgiven. And we can have that new life. Our hearts can be changed, and we will receive eternal life. All of that, most of you know, if not all of you. You have heard it before. If you have experienced, you know it from that experience, from that life-transforming work that God has done in you. But far too often we stop at that point. We stop at celebrating God's forgiving grace, His amazing grace in wiping out our sin. But as our theme says this morning, when the power of the gospel brings new life to an individual, their whole view of life is changed for the glory of God. In other words, the grace of God is not just about forgiveness of sin. The grace of God is about change. A new life that he has given to us so that we might live for the glory of God rather than the glory of self. Few biblical characters manifest for us this change that we're talking about, the greatness of the saving power of Jesus Christ, even for those who before he came into the world, for those of the Old Testament. Few manifest that like Jacob, the man who we've been studying over the past few weeks. Three weeks ago, I shared with you about the powerful 
salvation that Jacob experienced is God took a hold of this scoundrel of a man and changed his heart. This morning, I want you to recognize the confirmation of that divine transformation. I want you to see the change and the power of that change in the life of this man, Jacob. And we see it in chapters 33, 34, and 35. You don't have to be a terrible sinner, a horrible individual to understand the need of a Savior. Jacob was not what we might call a great sinner. Not like Samson or King Manasseh or even Saul of Tarsus. But Jacob needed a Savior just as desperately as those individuals did. And so do you, and so do I. We don't know just how deeply sin has taken control of us until the Spirit of God opens our eyes. Peter talked about that in Sunday school this morning. Until God opens our eyes and he shows us, first of all, the holiness of God. And then he shows us the depth of the wickedness of our rebellion against that God, just how far we fall short of the purpose for which God created us, that we might bear his image in the midst of this world. We saw that new creation that occurred in Jacob's life just a few chapters ago in chapter 32. Then the angel said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. But have you? Have you striven with God? Have you clung to Him in the agonizing prayer, pleading with Him to change your heart, to change your life, to change who you are? Give you the new desires, the new loves, the new life. Let's take a look at the transformation that occurred in Jacob's life that revealed his new heart so that we might get an understanding of how that affects us. So notice first that Jacob's interaction with Esau shows restoration. The restoration of relationships. I mean... If you've been with us through this study, after having read through the story of Jacob and Esau, anyone who then opens up and reads chapter 33 should be astounded. (laughs) You should almost like fall backwards. It is such a shock. Esau hated Jacob. And Jacob was certainly not in love with his twin brother Esau. These two brothers were enemies from the womb. And Isaac and Rebekah, their parents, they only increased that enmity as we've seen between these two. And we left chapter 32. As we left it, Esau is on his way towards Jacob with 400 mounted troops. What's going to happen? Well, we know what's going to happen. Esau 
has hated his brother. He's going to come and he's going to chop this guy into bits. He's going to cut him up. The last words that we've heard Esau say about Jacob was, I'm going to kill him. And that's what we expect. And now here he is racing towards Jacob with those 400 mounted men. And chapter 33 opens, and you expect something really big to happen. And it does. Esau comes running in and grabs a hold. And verse 4 states, But Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck, kissed him, and they wept. Two brothers that hated each other. And in a moment, the attitudes are changed or transformed. What happened? Where's the violence? Where is the battle? You can tell this story wasn't written by Marvel Adventures, was it? How could these sworn enemies meet and have a love feast? As Sean shared last week, they could do it because of but God. But God. God, rich in mercy, had transformed the heart of Jacob. And he had worked for good in the life of Esau. One of the signs of a transformed heart is a desire for the restoration of relationships. Just a few chapters before this, Jacob had had another meeting, a meeting with his father-in-law that didn't end well. And the only reason that Jacob was still alive was because God had come to Laban, his father-in-law, in a dream and said, you touch that man and I'll destroy you. That's the only thing that kept him from being wiped out. We expect the same kind of thing here, but we don't see it. Jacob and Laban had parted as enemies with a warning that Laban would hunt down Jacob and kill him if anything happened to his daughters or to his grandchildren. And now Jacob and Esau meet and they hug each other as long lost brothers as if there are not 400 armed men surrounding them. Going, what's going on? Why were we brought on this if it wasn't to attack? And what's the difference? The only difference is a change in the heart of Jacob. Jacob had met God. Jacob had surrendered his life to God. Jacob had let go of his pride. My friends, who among us have not had those experiences in our life? Those people that hurt us badly. People that we didn't think we could ever forgive. Deep inside, a spirit of resentment, anger, bitterness. Will you let Jesus Christ do to you what He did to Jacob? To clean out that pain? To take away the poison from your heart? Oh, we can make those excuses. We can say, you don't know what they did to me. 
And the fact is, I don't. No, I, I don't know what they've done to you, but God does. Let me ask you, did they do more to you than the Nazis did to Corrie ten Boom? When they killed her family, raped her sister, and she escaped out of the Nazi concentration camp by an accident when two days later they wiped out everybody in that concentration camp? And even worse, did they do more to you than you did to the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God? Because it was your sin, it was my sin, that led him into this world, that caused him to suffer as he did, and to be crucified and buried. Yes, it was us, me, And yet as he hung there on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive. It's for that reason the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, forgave you. We need to let go of that inner pain, that hurt inside that's eating at you, blinding you to the perfect love of the Father who wishes to lavish his love on you as his child. Yes, the interaction with Esau shows us that the transforming power of the gospel brings restoration in relationships But also notice that Jacob's interaction with Shechem shows regret. Chapter 34. It introduces us to one of the most terrible situations that are recorded in the Bible. The rape of Jacob's daughter, Dinah, and the subsequent slaying of all the men of the town of Shechem by Jacob's sons in retaliation for it. It's a horrifying account. The sinful, deceptive attitude of Jacob that had been such a part of his life has now been manifested in his own sons. Simeon and Levi, who seek to destroy in retaliation. Unfortunately, as the scripture warns, the sins of the parents are often reflected in their children to the third and the fourth generation. Jacob was a deceiver. He was a scoundrel. He had used religion only when it suited him. And now his sons, in chapter 34, do the same thing as the father. They used the deceptive attitude of of their father that they'd seen in him. Even to the using of the covenantal sign of circumcision as a means of to incapacitate the men of that city so they might kill them all. However, we need to take note not just the evil that's done in that chapter, but we need to take note of Jacob in that chapter. There is a radical transformation that has taken place in this man's life. Before 
his conversion experience, it would have been Jacob who had figured out how to destroy those men. But he doesn't. Jacob does something he has not done at all up to this point. Jacob shows patience. Instead of being the one to plan the deception, Jacob shows restraint. We see it in verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. That's not Jacob. Jacob would have figured it all out, and when those sons came, he would have had it all planned. But no, not now. Where is this Jacob, this, this man of impulse, who grasped his brother's heel coming out of the womb? Well, his sons are off plundering, killing, and raping. Jacob is weeping. He understands that such actions will simply bring pain in the end. Look at verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. He understands for the first time there are consequences to your actions. Consequences to what you do. Instead of reacting by impulse. There's a saying, I don't get mad. I get even. The Bible has a better one. It's found in the book of Romans. Beloved, never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God could have taken care of those Shechemites if he had wanted. And God could have destroyed you. Because of your sin, because of your rebellion, he could have wiped you off the face of the earth. But instead, what did God do? He forgave you. He forgave you of all the rebellion that you've done towards him. So that you might have life. I'm not saying that we never feel the pain and the hurt of our past. But I am saying that we let that go in Christ. Let him bring to us that new life. Change our hearts. Change our attitudes. And know that in the sovereign power of an eternal God. He will work all things. For your good and for his glory. But there's a third thing that we see. In these three chapters. When it comes to this change, this transformation that has occurred in the life of, of Jacob. Notice Jacob's interaction with Rachel shows repentance. We've arrived at chapter 35. It is the final chapter in the saga between Jacob and Esau. A lot happens in this chapter that we don't have the time to acknowledge today. But there are several aspects of the text that open our eyes to how radical this change has been in this man that we call Jacob. Earlier, we discovered that Rachel, who was Jacob's love, had stolen her father's idols. Like Jacob, she had learned, probably from him, how to deceive others. So her her quick-witted deception had flummoxed her father, 
And she was able to keep those idols, take them with her. You might wonder how after spending 20 years with Jacob, she was still interested in false idols, still interested in worshiping the gods of her father. Unless you remember that 20 years earlier, when Jacob had experienced that thing that we call Jacob's ladder, the vision that he had had there, that Jacob had been okay with polytheism. He had seen Yahweh, Israel's God, as just one of many gods. I'll let you, Yahweh, be my God. Out of all those gods, I'll choose to follow you if you'll do these things for me. Jacob no longer, however, can tolerate a namby-pamby view of faith. He can no longer tolerate the lack of truth in his worship. There are three things that Jacob tells his household in verse 2. So Jacob said to the household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourself, and change your garments. Three things. Put put away the foreign gods. Somehow, in the midst of this moving, after Laban had left, Jacob recognized that Rachel had those foreign gods. And perhaps the other people that with him had their own little gods as well. Jacob now challenges them. This is really a precursor to what we find in the book of Deuteronomy and what's called by the Jews the great Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. A heart that has truly experienced the power of the transforming work of God has no room for this whatever-you-want-to-believe kind of faith. The second thing that we see is he says, purify yourselves. And he's not talking about going out and taking a bath, cleaning up the outside. Instead, he's talking about a truly transformed heart that says, God, I no longer want to rebel against you. I no longer want to walk in the sin of my past. I want you to clear that out of my life. Take it away from me. You'll see a change in a person's heart because the Holy Spirit changes the passions and the desires of those individuals. As God works in them to bring forth that new life. And then there's the third one. Change your garments. He's not saying put on a suit and a tie so that you can go to church. What Jacob is talking about here is a change of understanding of what it means to enter into the presence of God. You know, we live in a culture today where we get rid of ties, right? Oh, boy, I wish, I wish that they had never invented these things, right? Just throw it away. Ah, free neck. Yes, you know, right? Oh, I can't even unbutton the button. That's how bad it is, right? 
where when we come together with the people of God, we can wear whatever we want. And I think that's a freeing thing. James says, don't look at how people are outwardly dressed when they come into the house of God. But there is a sense in which what we wear on the outside reflects the heart from the inside. What does it mean for us to enter into the presence of God? And I'm, I'm not just talking about in church. I'm talking about when you say grace at the table. I'm talking about whenever you pray to the God of the heavens. Whenever you pick up his word to read that. Jacob is saying, change your attitude, change your behavior, change your mindset when you come to worship God. Because he is going to lead his family into devotions. He is going to lead his family into the worship of God. He is going to erect an altar in what will be his home that the family might know how to worship the one true God. If you claim to be a Christian, is there the evidence that your heart has been changed? The evidence that it's been changed in terms of relationships, especially of those who have hurt you in the past. And when you sin or you see the sin around you, do you experience regret that you have harmed the name of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Regret of what you have done in the past that has affected others around you and perhaps even caused them to sin. And is there a repentance, a brokenness in your heart over the idols of your life that wants them to be dead and buried, gone forever from you? If so, then people around you will see a consecration of a divine transformation. They will see your life consecrated to the glory of God. Whenever God met with his people, he called them to consecrate themselves. The Israelites at Mount Sinai, consecrate yourself. Joshua outside of Jericho as the captain of the host of the Lord. Take off your shoes where you're standing as holy ground. Consecrate yourself. David, before being anointed king by Samuel and so many others. And so too Jacob. As he enters into this covenantal relationship with God at Bethel, who's called to consecrate himself and his family. We see it in verse 3. Let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Twenty years earlier, Jacob had been at Bethel and he had experienced his first vision of God. The angels ascending and descending on that ladder. Now God is calling him back, calling him back to that place where Jacob had made promises to God on that occasion. He had made a, a vow, the scripture says, in, verse, in chapter 28, 
And Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, most people that I know have at one time in their life made that kind of a vow. A child is sick. And the parents plead with God to heal that child. He'll do anything for God if he'll just heal that child. The soldier in the foxhole. God, get me out of here and I will serve you. A desire for marriage. A marriage falling apart. A loss of a job. There's so many ways that that we as people bargain with God, as Jacob did 20 years earlier. Jacob is called back. Back to where he made those vows. Back to Bethel. But he is not called back by God to fulfill those vows. They were foolish vows that he'd made. He is called back that he might remember that God is the one who keeps the promises, not man. That it's God who works in spite of us. You see, what what Jacob says is that God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone for 20 years, he didn't pay any attention to God. But as he looks back after that powerful, transforming experience that he had with God. He looks back over his life. He says, God was there all the time. God was working in me, through me, all that time. Not that he was saved, but that God was preparing him, bringing him, drawing him to himself. Have you ever looked back on your life? Seen how God worked in spite of you? In spite of you forgetting Him and you're continuing in your sinful ways, God was at work. God is calling us back to that place of consecration. Back to where He first called us out. Where He promised to be our God. And that we could be His people. Three things happen to Jacob that need to happen in your life if you're a Christian. Let me cover them quickly. Notice that Jacob's inspiration from God reveals the relationship with God. Has God appeared to you? Have you met the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross? Listen to God's word to Jacob in verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. What's the purpose of an altar? It is for sacrifice. Any true meeting of God has to come through a sacrifice. You must die at Bethel, which means house of God. You must come to the altar. Come to die to yourself and find life in Jesus Christ who died as a sacrifice for you. Surrender your all to the Lord that you might experience a relationship with the Most High God. But also notice Jacob's inspiration at Bethel reveals his reflection 
His reflection on the character and nature of God. You see, a heart that has come to know God in a living relationship is a heart that worships, that loves to meet with God in the house of God. Verse 6 and 7, catch that. It says, And Jacob came to Luz, that is to Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. Because there God revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. El Bethel. El, that's the Hebrew word for God. Bethel means house of God. This is the God of the house of God. The worship of God no longer is an act that Jacob goes through. He has met the God of the place of worship. His heart longed to know him more. Jacob had learned to meditate, to reflect on what God had promised, what God had said, to reflect on the character and the nature of God, the God who is the God of Bethel. Why do you come to church? Is it to get a good feeling? Is it a ritual? Is it to meet friends? Oh, that you might long to meet the God of the house of God. To join in joyful assembly with all of those who have a relationship with this wonderful, eternal Savior and Lord. To hunger for sweet communion with Him. Last Sunday, Karen and Matt and I, we had the privilege of of, uh, being in Washington, D.C. and of attending Capitol Hill Baptist Church where Mark Dever preaches. We did not, however, go there to hear Mark Dever. He preached and we heard him. He's a wonderful man of God. We went, though, because we longed to be with God in the splendor of His holiness. To be amongst fellow worshipers. What a joy it is for us to go back home to the little tiny church in Herrickville, Pennsylvania. To hear Pastor Jason, who is not a world-renowned speaker. To rejoice with God's people there in Bethel, the house of God. The privilege of reflecting on the truths of God's Word, whether it is in our home or in the church, but always with the God of Bethel. There's the third thing. Notice Jacob's inspiration from covenants reveals his renaming. For Jacob is no longer Jacob. He is no longer the supplanter. He is no longer the deceiver. God has changed his name because he has changed his heart verse 10 and God said to him your name is Jacob no longer shall your name be called Jacob but Israel shall be your name so he called his name Israel in the book of Revelation we are told that God does the same thing for you and me that God has changed your name as he's changed my name I am no longer Christopher I am a child of the king I am a royal priesthood I am a holy nation I am a Christian, as I said last night. And in God's sight, I'm a new person. The old is past, the new has come. I have a new name, written down in glory. Written in indelible ink. I'm a new person in Christ. And that's the meaning of baptism. For Jacob, the act of consecration came in verse 14 when he set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him a pillar of stone and poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. But for us as Christians, baptism is that act of consecration. On November 17th, we will hold a baptism 
service here during the morning worship service. If you haven't been baptized as a believer, I would encourage you to take that step of consecration. Is your life a manifestation of the powerful, transforming work of God? Is that your testimony today? And so in conclusion, I'd like to ask you, has your heart been changed? Do you see the world differently than you did before you proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ as your Savior? Before you were born again? And have you marked your transformation in baptism? There's a statement, I no longer am who I was. I am now a Christian, belonging to Christ, living for Christ, glorifying Christ. As we make disciples, baptize disciples, challenge disciples to live for God's glory, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given to us hope. A hope that we couldn't possibly have had. Instead of the struggle like Jacob did to try to deceive and maneuver and manipulate We can rest in the sovereign and glorious power of our Savior, Jesus Christ, at work in us by the Holy Spirit to change us into the image of Christ. Oh, that you might indeed help us to see that you have given us a new name in glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.